Yo, David, what's up? How's awesome. it going? Awesome. Good. How are you? I'm, I'm well. Sorry, I'm about a minute late. I uh, no, no, it's all right. <laughs> my apologies, man. So, what's happening? Um, a global pandemic. Um, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm not sure if anything else is going on. I think that might be the only thing going on in all the world. Yeah, yeah, I think so. We've all forgot about Brexit over here. <laughs> Yeah, I follow this independent news channel on YouTube, but it's primarily, it's based out of the UK. And oh, so for, for years, well, yeah, I guess it, it literally is years now. For years, I followed the whole Brexit thing and like pretty closely as though I were, uh, you know, a, a Brit, which I'm not, obviously. <laughs> and, at, and at the same time, I now kind of miss all of that hullabaloo surrounding that and not, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it's odd to say because I'm not even British, right? But I miss when Brexit was the biggest thing to worry well, about. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a soap opera, isn't it? Yeah. Has um, the US been okay in terms of COVID, you guys? Uh, I don't think the US is going to be okay for a while. I don't think we were, I don't think the US is particularly exemplary right now in the terms of the world situation. But yeah. um, fortunately, I've been fine. And so I have not been quite as affected. I have a few friends who have been very severely affected. But so far for me and my family, it's been okay, which is odd to think about, you know, I'm okay, even though I realize the world's not okay, but. Um, That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. And it, how, uh, how have you, on the other side of the pond, how have you, uh, how have the, has it been over there? Yeah, yeah, it's been all right. It's been all right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, some people get sick. Um, I think I had it early on and yeah, I was a bit sick for like about five days or something, but yeah, it's all right. Um, but yeah, the lockdown, yeah, it's, it's hurting people, man. I think people's mental health is not not good. Economy, suffering. Yeah. yeah. My mental health wasn't good before the pandemic. And so <laughs> yeah. whenever the, whenever it was first sort of announced and became big news in the US, which um, at, from, at least for my area was around in March, I was yeah. literally on spring break, about to return um, from spring break back to school. And we got the news. We got started getting the emails from the university about the measures and the lockdown measures. And at that point, I realized I just entered like um, a headspace where I thought, OK, this is going to be bad for a while. And I think at that point, I just gave up. <laughs> so although I think one of the benefits for me is that I just leaned in to the depressive aspect of it very early on. So um, sorry, bro. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, we can get started whenever you want, and feel you can free to feel free to ask me anything. I have nothing to hide, um, except <laughs> except my except my enormous fraudulence. Like I have that to hide, but I guess there's no point in hiding that. No, uh, imposter syndrome is kind of endemic in our industry, I'm afraid. So um... that's very true. It's, I'm so glad to hear you say that, and but I know that it's true. I I think that I have such an unrealistically high opinion of everyone in our field. And at the same time, whenever I'm with like down to earth, real people, we all realize we have no idea what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, so true. I, rec I, I recognize what you're saying right now. Yeah. Um, dude, I'm, I'm in your hands. I'll follow your lead. <laughs> but I do want to know, like, so what's your area? Are you religious epistemology? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what are you working on man, what's the crack? So, um, I guess I'm David, right? And uh, I, 
I, I don't know if it's possible to come late to Wittgensteinianism because, you know, the slow cure is all important and all that. But so I started out or as an undergrad, I, I guess I technically had more of a so-called continental upbringing in my undergrad department. I went to University of Texas at El Paso and so was into phenomenology for a while. And then in grad school, my first semester, my first term in grad school, just discovered or rediscovered Wittgenstein pretty hard. And it was like, my I was actually talking to a friend um, the other day and he said, yeah, that was incredibly sudden. There was no, there were no like symptoms or signs. All of a sudden you were just a full root and branch Wittgensteinian um, have, after having been, you know, into phenomenology and Heidegger and all of that. But I lean pretty deeply into, although I say I do religious epistemology, it's certainly not of the pretty standard um, you know, like Bill Alston, Alvin Planinga type, it's obviously Wittgensteinian. And I'm particularly interested in the epistemology of authority and tradition mm -hmm. and community, like so the social epistemology of community, because I think that's where it's at. And I think that although it's starting to come out, become more popular, we have like people like Linda Zagzebski and her defense of epistemic authority. And then on the, you know, Wittgensteinian side, we have in the some of the quasi fideism stuff that's coming out, there's more of attention to that, but still not quite in the direction I would like. I'm pretty big on understanding the epistemology of religious communities and traditions. And then also, since I'm not just, you know, I'm a bad Wittgensteinian, I'm not just a descriptivist. I think <laughs> that the, if there's interventions in religion that need to take place, they're at the level of facing community, facing those bind, those things that bind us together. I'm not interested in perceiving God. I'm interested in perceiving our social connection to the people in the communities that have shaped us for all of human history. Mm. Interesting. Um, why are you into that stuff? Oh, why am I into that stuff? Um, wouldn't it be amazing if this turned into an interview of me? Like, I'm happy for it to go yeah, that way, but no, 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 it would be, it would be great. Making me feel comfortable, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, I'm into it because, so I was raised as a Protestant Christian and just throughout life, a lot of my interest and angst and just existential distress has been focused partially around that. And even though I'm not the best or most practicing or believing Christian anymore, I see that I think... I've always, I don't know if this will make sense, but religion's fascinating to me because it's obviously so important. Um, it's a really, a, it's a, I think it's the location of the intersection of just a lot of what people care about and their commitments and their habits and all the way that they've formed their life. And I'm not sure, like I, in my experience in having looking into getting into philosophy of religion, a lot of it just seems to be effectively philosophical theology, or you know, if I may say so, apologetics, basically. And my interest, I, I never found people until relatively, like when I found Wittgenstein and those who sort of think like him, I wasn't able to find people who were able to really put their finger on where the anxiety was. And I, I guess, the more I've just leaned into it, I've seen how various religions and denominations have splintered and the sort of conflicts they've had. And a lot of the sort of apologetic fervor behind that, you know, the whole uh, arguments between the various denominations of Christianity and other sort of world religions, a lot of it just doesn't seem to address the fact that even if 
this, even if a person's religion is in the end a matter between them and God or their gods or whatever, there's still a really human element. And it, all of our disagreements are usually and presumably with other humans or other, other interlocutors, like where we can't all be like Jacob getting our hip thrown out, right? It's most of the time, if someone's going to throw out the hips or throw us out of joint, it's going to be another person. It's going to be the person who is either a you know, a strict dogmatist, or it's going to be the person who's skeptical, but somehow still spiritual. And I just, I'm interested in confronting others in religion, since I think that religion is about really about community and about the ties that bind us together, oh. like binding us together. And somewhere, I guess, sure, God might play into that. But like I said, I'm really focused on the stuff that's empirically there that we can deal with. I can't argue with, um, Swinburnian invisible persons, but I can argue with, you know, the person in front of me who is on the wrong side of a lot of things in history. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's so nicely put. (laughs) (laughs) But that's me. So why don't you tell me a little bit about um, yourself? Uh, Dude, I don't know. What is there to tell? Um, Yeah, I do philosophy partly for a living. yeah, um, and I'm not insane yet. I'm half insane from philosophy. Um, yeah, what do I do? I'm a Wittgenstein guy. I write on Wittgenstein. I think a little bit about him, but I'm very keen not to be a disciple of Wittgenstein. I'm very keen not to be a dogmatist. Um, I think that's un-Wittgensteinian, I might say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm interested, as in far as philosophy, I'm interested in morality. And I'm not sort of clever enough to do um, actual ethics, like telling people what is right and wrong. <laughs> and I suspect not many people are clever enough. So I do meta-ethics. Like, I just think it's such a weird thing that we care about what is right or wrong or what is good and bad. A little bit like what you said about religion. It's such a, a fantastically strong motivator. And yet it seems so philosophically fragile. Uh, I, yeah, I want to understand that. I want to understand that. It's like something that I feel like I could never give up my moral concerns. And yet I can't really explain why. Mm -hmm. I want to know why, because that's weird, isn't it? Yeah. I love what you say about the fragility of not just religious belief, but also, I guess, to some extent, moral belief as well. Mm. And I think that's a big part of my work is too, is that I think of myself not so much as, as a philosopher, although I guess technically I, I am, I shouldn't beat myself up or give into the imposter syndrome. But I, what I think of myself within my philosophical work as someone whose sole job is just to point out what is glaringly obvious and yet which no one is talking about. And yeah. I think what one of the things that whether I'm sure there's people talking about it, like we have we do have an industry. Right. But one of the things which I'm trying to point out or would like to point out is that a lot of weight, you know, um, is put on religious belief and upon moral belief. But it is so very fragile. And it's sort of like walking in sort of like a glass skyscraper where, yeah. you know, you clearly you're being supported or you there's some sort of support there, but you've got to wonder if your eyes are open, just how tenuous it is and how mm. at any moment it could come crashing down. And yet somehow it still works, right? Mm. Nice analogy. I like the glass skyscraper. <laughs> I won't steal it, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you do, you do philosophy somewhat professionally. So that usually in our really well gate kept discipline usually means some kind of qualifications. So where did you study philosophy? Oh yeah. Okay. Um, Well, I started off at um, Aberdeen um, up in 
up in Scotland, about as far north as you can go in the UK, almost. It was very cold. Um, yeah, I was just talking to my housemate about this. I, um, I started off doing theology and film studies, which is why I went to Aberdeen, because they're one of the only ones that did that. Um, but that kind of died after a year, and I didn't get on well with it. Um, but yeah, I had like a year's worth of qualification. Yeah, maybe I'll get into that at another point. But in the end, I came back down here to the south, the south of England. Hertfordshire happens to be close by. Um, I was in a bookshop one day and they had a massive philosophy department. I was like, oh, there must be a uni that does philosophy around here. And yet it turns out just over the road. Um, yeah, so I finished my undergrad there at Hertfordshire for a bit of variety. I went to uh, Haythrop College, which is now closed, um, and did religion and philosophy. Uh, which is good. I got more introduced to the continental. It's interesting you say you had a continental upbringing. I think that's probably quite rare in the UK. You can't. You might do like a module on it or get a little bit of an introduction, but it's pretty rare. I think Kingston does it. But yeah, it's mainly analytics. And then yeah, I was I was stupid enough to do um, a PhD back at Hearts. I'd become like very enamoured by Wittgenstein in my undergrad because um, yeah, like we had a lecture on him we had like a, a module and one particular lecture. Um, what was we talking about? You know, when Vic Stein talks about oh, the concept of a game and that it's a family resemblance concept, there's no essential quality. Right. I was like, well, no, you know, I, the teacher presented this and I thought, no, Wittgenstein, you are wrong for X, Y, Z reasons. And then the teacher flipped to the next slide and it had my X, Y, and Z reasons which I thought no one had ever thought of. And I was like, oh, this guy's way ahead of me. Um, I'm going to pay attention to what he says. So, yeah, from then on, I started taking him quite seriously. And it happens that Hertfordshire has got some good Wittgensteinian philosophers. For instance, uh, Daniel Moyal-Sharok, who I approached to be my supervisor for a PhD. And she, uh, yeah, she took me on. Yeah, I spent six and a half years writing my PhD which is awful. It was part-time because um, I had to work, you know, I had to work to support myself. Um, so yeah, six and a half years. I don't know if I recommend it. The work comes out better because you take longer. Um, certainly for me, I'm, I'm a real slow thinker. So yeah, I think the work was better. And when, when it came time to turn it into a book, it didn't take that long because I couldn't make it any better. You know what I mean, that was as good as... <laughs> If it wasn't good enough then, then that's tough because that's as good as I could get it. So yeah, finished my PhD 2017, I think, something like that. And here we are, you know, here we are today. I love how time doesn't really mean anything anymore because of the <laughs> pandemic. Um, but yeah, like, I, I love that. Like, I, I think that uh, it would be easy to think, oh, once you finish, like, that'll be like the date of your completion will be enshrined in your own personal calendar. But a lot of it's just like, oh, yeah, I learned that at some point. I got that over with. But... Yeah, I finally finished it. Yeah, it was a great satisfaction. Um, how far through yours are you? So my program is six years long and I am in my fifth year. So theoretically, I ought to begin dissertating relatively soon. Although I, um, I, I can see what you mean about it being good to take longer and about the, you know, the I'm like an ADHD person. I, I'm not even sure how I've made it this far <laughs> in graduate school, but I yeah, definitely think that a lot of it, because I think a lot of 
in my experience, both with Wittgensteinian work in general and with Wittgenstein's own, you know, work, it's very slow burn. Like all the sort of stuff is kind of cumulative. Mm. If you just kind of try to nakedly just put it out there or make it explicit in the way that a lot of analytics are very, um, a lot of analytic philosophers are very used to and see and would prefer, it can just sort of seem less impressive than it is if you mm-hmm. do this whole slow burn over time and you realize, holy crap, there's something here. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so this, the, the slowness is important, but apparently whether or not I'm able to um, go that slowly, I shouldn't be done in give or take it's all give or take i almost certainly won't be done by the my slated time but um that's what you, what i'd expect what i would have predicted anyway okay. well it looks so it looks like you're on for about six years yourself yeah sweet yeah you know what yeah that's that's the right way to do it <laughs> depends on the person you know one of my teachers did theirs in like two and a half years um that was dan hutto and he's an absolute killer so, oh yeah, Dan. Oh, you know Dan. <laughs> I don't. I don't know him. I just know you know sort of his work. But um, um, well, it obviously worked for him because he's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I've looked into or whenever I was first early on in grad school. Um, I mean, I didn't expect to convert to Wittgensteinism so wholeheartedly. If I had, when I was an undergrad, I very likely would have gone somewhere else. And um, but you know, I've made do with what I my current situation is. But I know that it. Grad, work, grad school works a little bit different in the UK than it does in North America, because although it would have taken me six years in my program, that was a combination of coursework and research, oh. as well as um, student teaching. So I know that it's often combined, at least I know that's how it is in the US and Canada, because that's part of how a lot of departments in the US justify um, sponsoring or paying us um, mm-hmm. because we wind up working and being students and being grad students all wrapped up into one. I'm not sure, I, I, it's hard to evaluate from, since I've never tried the other system, the way it's often done, it seems well, the way it seems to be done in the UK and, and the EU, um, where you know you have more, the coursework is more delegated to your masters and the PhD is primarily a research degree where you're just researching and doing your research, um, which sounds great. Although again, I'm not sure if I would trust myself to knock all the modules out in one fell swoop, but it's, yeah, it is different, but so it's been a long six years. It will have been a very long six years um, indeed for me at the end. Yeah. Well, you're not alone. I think everyone feels like that towards the end. So what, I don't know if this this question makes sense for me, but I don't know if it makes sense for all philosophers. Maybe I'm just projecting, but what mm-hmm. is it that first got you into philosophy, whether you were an undergrad or even younger? I, you know, a lot of us were really young when we got into it. And so what first, if, if there is something that first got you into philosophy and you remember it, what was it? And in general, since a lot of people, this is comes up a lot amongst Wittgensteinians, um, what do you, how do you even see philosophy? If for people who don't have a, sort of architectonic view of what philosophy is as a discipline. How do you think about what it is you do, whatever that is? Yeah, indeed. I don't know. Right. Why did I blooming do philosophy? Look, I, it's just my, it's just a personality type. I'm just sort of made in a way that I just get into big questions. They interest me. They fascinate me. I feel like I have to answer this. Um, you know, if we're in a seminar and someone says, oh, Neil, what, what is time? You know, most people, normal people would be like, well, that's ridiculous. Let's do something else. But I'm like, yeah, what is time? I don't know. You know, get kind of obsessed by it. 
so I think that naturally just led to a philosophical kind of path, something that I you know, would study more formally. Yeah, I guess I just like it. It's a bit, sometimes I wish I was a bit more uh, unconcerned about such things because I think life would be easier, but I feel like life is richer also. So it's a bit like you've got to take the rough with the smooth, you know what I mean? I think, yeah, being interested in, I want to understand what on earth life is about. I want to understand why people act the way they do, what is morality. Um, I want to know who God is, what he is like. I want to, you know, all of these things, I'm like, for some reason, I want to understand them. And so I guess doing philosophy, I feel like, is the way to do it. Yeah. So I guess what is philosophy? Um, for me, I see it as mainly negative. Uh, maybe that's partly why I like Wittgenstein so much. I know some Wittgensteinians will be annoyed that I would say something like that. But yeah, I do see it as mainly negative. I think the figure of Socrates and getting rid of false knowledge is like a massive part of philosophy. Um, essentially, I think it's just thinking clearly. Um, there are certain canonical questions that philosophy deals with, but essentially in terms of the disciplines, I was just trying to think very clearly about things, being very aware of logical relations, where something is inferred, where something is not. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. You know, it's just, it's, it's negative work. It's get, you basically end up saying very little because you realise that most of what is said is nonsense or has nonsense in it. And so, yeah, for me, getting rid of the nonsense, that's pretty much it. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that's often associated with the so-called early Wittgenstein. But, you know, mm. I think that at least since I know Danielle's work a little bit, who you worked with, the okay. the almost really apophatic character of philosophy, that it's way more about what you don't say than what you do mm -hmm. say, which is also, it's a difficult selling point, though. Like, <laughs> I have the hardest time trying to convince my yeah. philosophical colleagues and also my unphilosophical colleagues that I'm not crazy. Although, I mean, <laughs> they, they know that I'm already crazy, so it's kind of a diff... Um, yeah, a lost oh, cause, so. but that I'm the right kind of crazy. <laughs> that I'm not just that I'm not the I'm not the dangerous kind. It's just I'm just a little a little really crazy. <laughs> but yeah. So does that? I ask the, this question, which is, do you think of yourself as either a straight up Wittgensteinian or an ordinary language philosopher or just an analytic philosopher? Because I, I I struggle with this all the time. I know there's not supposed to be. Wittgensteinianism because it's you know it's the, um, really antithetical to the aims of Wittgenstein that there be a cadre of people who are devoted and sort of hero worship him and try to imitate him but I mean he did have that kind of personality but do you yeah. think of yourself under those labels or do you try to sort of steer clear of that kind of like I think you mentioned discipleship yeah yeah good question well yeah yeah I definitely identify with um you know, I'm a Wittgensteinian philosopher. I think whatever I feel about that title, it's just true. I um, I read Wittgenstein, take him very seriously and find what he says very clear and, um, you know, very perspicuous, as he might say. I think he diagnoses the problems correctly. So I think he's right about a lot of stuff. So, yes, I would identify as a Wittgensteinian there's a lot of stuff I don't think he's right about um I'm not a, a I don't take very much from the tractatus um so when I say uh, I feel like you have you get to say less as a philosopher that's not because I believe that the world is such that we cannot describe it but 
we say less because a lot of what we try to say is philosophically problematic or not thought through well enough. So, yeah, I'm not being ineffable. I'm just being, um, I don't know, combative, something like that. Yeah, yeah, so I definitely identify with that label somewhat. But as you alluded to before, I still do some theoretical work. You know, we have to write books and stuff, don't we? And we have to actually say stuff. So I do try tentatively have positive opinions about some things. Um, I mean, like, segue to the book, the basic moral certainty stuff. I think there is something that is correct about our moral epistemology, that there are some moral beliefs that you just can't justify and yet remain fundamentally important. So, yeah, that is a positive claim that I'm willing to make. Uh, The way I put it is definitely not going to be true in all points, Um, but I think something like it is is probably correct. Yeah. And so, I mean, since you said it is a good segue, like... um... Sorry, man. No, 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 no. Yeah, it is um, the... Part of what I mean, part of the questions that I sort of sent and we can sort of pick and choose from one is just to think of you more as like, as for me, and so uh, in my experience, it can be difficult to sort of humanize philosophers because, you know, for if they're a canonical figure, if they're one of the venerable old dead people whose work we study, um, yeah. we just have the work and like you get an impression which is almost certainly ludicrous, right? Like you'd think from reading Kant that he was terrible or that he was just a real stick in the mud, but we know that that's not strictly true. It's, you know, he just had a very rigorous writing style, which um, for which we'll never forgive him. <laughs> but um, um, as an was example- Kant a nice and, bloke, was he? What was that? Was Kant a nice guy then after all? Apparently, at least based like, oh, rather yeah. what I've heard is that his lecturing style was completely different from his writing style. Apparently, oh. he apparently he was a very lively and a very um, you know sympathetic lecturer who gave lots of great examples and talked oh. through things in very simple terms, and um, gave lectures that even you know non academic types would come and listen to and we and then we wind up you know and you crack open the first page of the first critique and you wonder you know what is this yeah oh interesting okay nice nice tip sorry but but, but right so part of the part of the endeavor is to humanize philosophers and to show like you know there we are real people at least you know some of us are real people um there might still be some not so real people but we can leave those and the other thing of course is to actually talk about your project which i think is really interesting i read your book in quick succession after um yulia herman's book similarly on um and this whole endeavor of just i mean i mean i think of the car partially because of my interest in Kant as well, which I think bleeds out into, you know, the usual suspects like Kierkegaard, Wittgenstein, you know, and this attitude of relating morality to religion. I really love the idea of moral religion, you know, a kind of that religion and morality share, as you mentioned, a fragility in that although it's woven all throughout our lives and everybody who's anybody has some sort of moral commitments or beliefs and relate has to relate those, especially if they have other religious beliefs, they have to relate those together. And just getting that mix right of how morality relates to religion is really important to me, which is all a lead up to say why I find the Wittgensteinian project of the kind of what we might call Wittgensteinian metaethics so interesting, um, since it does any discussion of these kind of certainties that we're able to have will apply pretty interestingly to both religion and morality. So that's just my excuse for reading your work, but it, I, it turned out that it was great. And so, uh, um, so we can talk about your project your sort of your ideas or we can continue on with like the more personal stuff it's really up to you 
dude, I'm in your hands, man. Wherever, cool. you know, wherever, wherever you fancy. <laughs> cool, cool. Why don't you mention really quickly? So you got into Wittgenstein because similarly, when I first got into Wittgenstein, he made me angry. Like I... there was a brief <laughs> period whenever it was so frustrating. Yeah. Um, and then it was just sort of like it eased out and all of a sudden like, oh, okay, it's a, uh, it's a gestalt sort of thing. You know, you don't see it, then you do see it. And all of a sudden it's all different. Uh, but, um, and I'm going to butcher this because of the Danish language in general, but um, Legstrup, you know, Knud um, Ehler Legstrup is not a popular figure or not at least certainly, at least until recently, not on yeah. the radar. Wittgenstein at least has that, that he's famous. No one understands him, but he's famous. Um, <laughs> Legstrup might have the opposite problem where it's difficult to understand and nobody knows about him. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you, how did that enter into your life stream or your philosophical stream of thought? Interesting. Well, um, my, uh, one of my supervisors, PhD supervisors, John Lippitt, he's a Kierkegaard scholar. Uh, and he said, Hey, Neil, why don't you check out this Lerstrip guy? He's, you know, he's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I read him, tried him out once and I thought, nah, this is, this is rubbish. This isn't for me. Um, and for some reason, John, being the wise man that he is, suggested it again a little further on down the road. Um, I tried him again and I was like, dude, yeah, I found him very, very formative. His stuff about, well, as I read him, um, about the anti-principle morality stuff, um, that morality isn't about following like sort of metaphysical principles or whatever. Uh, that stuff, I was like, that's spot on. That was a massive change in how I saw morality um just personally and philosophically um that was big for me so yeah i guess it was john lippitt that got me into lerstrup yeah i um i actually got into lerstrup through your work primarily i thought who is this person i, I had to wikipedia search him and then think <laughs> okay well now i have to read something in german or you know, danish or whatever yeah. um but so i got i am pretty new to him i don't know all um that there is to know about you know his work but given that i came from a somewhat continental department at least out of undergrad one of the persons i worked with and was fond of as an undergrad was um levinas you know uh, emmanuel levinas, levinas. <laughs> and some i mean what at least what the what all three have in common that is to say wittgenstein levinas and legstrup is there just this view of this demandingness right it's not it's not as explicit in wittgenstein because of course you know he didn't make much of anything explicit, but um, it's known at least of Wittgenstein that he, it's a very ironic, although he didn't allege to not have religious beliefs in the way that we would probably think of them today. I find it funny that um, at least for Wittgenstein, one of the things that motivated him to think that, okay, there could be an afterlife was the thought that there's an obligation that's so demanding that it even follows you in death. You can't escape the demands of morality even when you die. Um, and I know that's not entirely, I know that Levinas particularly has a similar view of morality in that it's this unmeetable demand that's constantly mm -hmm. on us. And I know that, I, I'm not sure exactly how demanding Lugstrup makes the ethical demand, but that is what his big book is called, you know, the, mm -hmm. the demandingness of morality, which is one of the things I like. And maybe I'm just actually a bit too puritanical or moralistic. I really like it when someone talks about the demandingness of nature. Like, mm -hmm. I know that some Wittgensteinians following people like, you know, Murdoch or Philippa Foote have gone more of the Aristotelian virtue method. And I like virtues, but I really do like demands too. I like the thought mm -hmm. that we're being harried or harassed by um, <laughs> this unmeetable demand upon us. Yeah. Mm. 
I think Lerstrup would say that the ethical demand is unfulfillable, yeah. Um, but I really, um, I resonate with what you say about being harried by the moral demand. Maybe that's, uh, yeah, one of my big motivations, I don't know, but yeah, that's how I experience it. It's like a serious thing and you can't just put it away. But I don't know where it's from, so it's weird, isn't it? That's why I want to know. That's why I want to write more books about it, you know? And of course, one of the things I love about um, at least Wittgenstein and Legstrup, from what I can tell, and I, I waver on, I'm not strong on the Levinas anymore, but the yeah. interesting thing is that the demand is there. It, and in some sense, I mean, Wittgensteinians, as Wittgensteinians, we have to be kind of suspicious of the the desire to articulate it as something objective or metaphysically out there or independent of us. But yeah. the point is the demand's there, but it's not from God. It's not, it's not a version of, or it's not simply a version of a divine command thing where we're demand, we have this unfulfillable demand. Because I think that's something in, at least in some forms of Christianity, it's there. There's definitely the distress about the demand that's being placed upon us. But it's mm -hmm. more to show us to say, oh, look, so you need God. And what I love about Lugstrup is that even though he was a Christian and a theologian and all of that, um, that he insists on being able to articulate the demand or at least recognize it without say confusing it with the will of someone called God or anyone other kind of, yeah. of express my own interaction with Wittgensteinian religious sensibilities. Cause I think there is kind of a set of stuff that goes along with people who fall in with Wittgenstein. We typically have interesting, colorful religious backgrounds that are in some <laughs> way deeply flawed and complicated by how yeah. messed up religion can be. But it's almost like, again, coming back to moral religion, it's like a quasi religion. It's like there is some kind of reverence that's demanded of us. There's, it's, it's, there's a bond which is very religious-like, but it is certainly not, no existing religion. It's, yeah, I'm not sure what to call it, but I find that really interesting. Mm. So, yeah, the, uh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, something Bernard Williams said, I think is useful. He, he talked about, um, so things appear objective. Um, they feel like they come from outside because they actually come from deeply within, something like that. Um, I think that's probably very telling about morality. I think there's something, it hits us like an objective demand, doesn't it? It hits us like we've met something in the world. But yeah, I think probably the safest place to look is in our makeup as human beings. What is it in us that um, incorrigibly cares about the other? Right. So jumping back to, I guess, the more humanized side of the philosophy, like, um, so one of the things I've experienced in grad school in general is that um, it's easy to like find yourself in an academic bubble where you mm -hmm. just sort of read your really nerdy books without end and you yeah. don't necessarily have too much of a social life, but that's really important. I mean, not maybe not for everyone, but family and friends and all that is really important. How, if at all, have like, has your, has your social support group, like your family or your friends or other social sort of institutions or supports, how have those influenced or helped or impacted the work that you do? whether in terms of your motivation or just literally, I have great ideas thrown at me by non-philosophers all the time. And I'm like, how do I credit this? There's no way to cite yeah. common sense, but. Um... <laughs> yeah, there's no way to cite common sense, yeah. Um, well, look, I guess my parents uh, are a big one because they financially supported me a lot of the time throughout my PhD. You know, there's only so much teaching you can do to get the rent paid. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't come from 
a family of sort of university professors or anything. You know, my uh, one of my brothers is uh, an electrician. The other one um, fixes washing machines. So they're very practical. Um, so in terms of like, we're not going to sit around the dinner table and discuss the nature of the ethical demand. That's not going to happen. But just in, t- <laughs> um, just in terms of loving me and being like practically supportive, that's certainly how my family were. Um, and my, uh, my wife at the time uh, was very, very supportive. Just uh, an incredibly loving, warm person who was just, you know, it's just so essential when you're going through, it's so difficult to do uh, the kind of work that we do at whatever level. I think you just need someone who is uh, grounded and who loves you. I think that really, that certainly helped me a lot. Yeah, got me through it. Yeah, definitely. I resonate so much with what you say about, you know, having important others. The The gods have determined that I'll be single for the foreseeable future. But oh, I do oh, notice oh. that in my program, the the paired off grad students are just not as insane as those of us. Is that right? <laughs> I mean, I could be projecting all of my bitterness, but I think it, is, yeah, yeah. it seems it's, it seems to check out empirically that those who have yeah. someone to go home to, who's not a philosopher, who can yeah. exacerbate your philosophical illnesses and who can yeah. just kind of be a real human being to deal with and interact with is really helpful. And also I wish that they would tell us that whenever we enter school, kind of like, you're gonna need people who aren't nerds like you in the same way to make sure that you don't go off the deep end. (laughs) I mean, I, I, that for me, that works. I need people that are not in the game. I mean, I know people that are married to philosophers and they seem super happy and love it. So some people is great for me. Apparently for you, <laughs> perhaps not. Yeah. And, you know, I want someone to just sit and watch America's Next Top Model with, do you know what I mean? Like, not just constantly talk about Wittgenstein and despair and all that. So character, since I've already, again, started going, I guess, in that direction, like, so one of the things I think is interesting, I love the fly bottle metaphor in Wittgenstein's work, mm-hmm. you know, and in yeah. the in the PI, he gives the famous sort of sentence that you know what's your aim in philosophy the aim is um letting the fly out of fly bottle and for the longest time i I knew what abstractly what a fly bottle was or is but i finally like looked them up i bought one from germany it's great i'm that i'm that obsessive of a wittgenstein fanboy but i mean it's easy to neglect that what i love about the metaphor is that if you really understand what one is it's actually kind of cruel i'm not sure it's the best you know metaphor retrospectively but the idea is that a fly travels up through the bottom of this bottle and through its desire to escape, you know, through the glass, because it can see, you know, the the heavens, I guess, and try to get out because of the drive to escape upwardly. You know, it's not never going to occur to the fly, not not that I imagine that most things occur to flies anyway, to come back (laughs) down and to sort of exit the trap by being grounded, by coming back down. And I think it's a great burn of conventional philosophers, of metaphysical philosophers. Um, I think of the um, fly bottle in contrast to the cave, right? Whereas with Plato, you're sooner or later, you're just rushing further up and further in, and then you're in Narnia, and then you're in heaven, and then you're just gone, you know, you're out of this world. Um, you do have to come down and be grounded if you're going to escape your philosophical problems. But all of that as a lead in to say, just for explaining the metaphor, I think of lots of things in my life. I'm like, oh, I'm in a fly bottle right now. Like I'm in a trap and I need to sort of get out. And I use that as a metaphor just in general for all the hiccups or issues I've encountered in my life personally and professionally. 
what, if anything, have your fly bottles been? Like what have, what has, what have been the things that have maybe deterred you from being as philosophically as, or personally successful or whatever as you might otherwise be? If you've ever been in a, I guess, a trap, whether philosophical or otherwise, what might those have been? And were you able to escape or are you still you know, flickering around in a fly bottle or so? If any of that makes sense, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so extra with my metaphors sometimes. What a great question. Yeah, I, I could see that you're a fan of the fly bottle now as you can podcast this. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the intro is great. <laughs> yeah, fly bottles, man. Whew. Well, I don't know. I guess, I, you know what, I'm probably in a ton. And because of the nature of the fly bottle, I just don't know. And um, yeah, I'm not able to, uh, to see my own predicament. But what fly bottles do I get into now? Yeah. I think professionally, um, thinking that one should be at a certain point at a certain time, I think is always a trap. And I don't think it, for me, it doesn't help. So um, a little bit boringly, the job market nowadays, right, in philosophy is savage um, and it's very, very difficult I mean, I think when, when we're in grad school, we tend to think, well, you know what, I'll do this and I'll get some lectureship. I'll get into a suite department. I'll be there for 40 years. You know, that'll be all great. Uh, but that story doesn't really work for our generation, sadly. I'm sorry to break. Like, I'm sure you know this already. I'm but, very uh, aware. I like have sleepless nights. I, oh, I'm geez. a glutton for punishment. No, it's, it's fine. Oh. I, I'm, a, I'm well aware. Um, oh, sorry, I, it's, if anything, it's good to know that it's as bad over there as it is here. Like it would be, it would really suck if somebody in the world had it good, right? Because <laughs> they yeah, have to, yeah. have to well, go there. But yeah, we're all yeah. suffering. Yeah. Um, so that is something that I said, I just have to talk to myself about and be like, look, Neil, that's not going to get you anywhere. Um, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a bit at Hertfordshire and London School of Theology. I like having to go and talk um, philosophy with students. That is something I like. I have to do other work, which I also enjoy and I find meaningful. So I think my way out of the flyboard is just to look at the good things that I actually have. Um, and I'm not sure how happy I would be uh, just being an academic um, in an institution. The ones I know seem a bit stressed out. Do you know what I mean? They seem like they got a lot on their plates. And, you know, since I've been a teenager, I've never just done one thing. I've always had, you know, a job and course or a couple of jobs. You know what I mean, so I don't think that path is for me. And I think just trying to be trying to deconstruct my own anxiety is a great way out of the flyball for me. Yeah. Our industry, I feel, has got a lot of anxiety and a lot of pressure. And so, yeah, I'm trying to resist that. I'm trying to really resist it. No, that's great. I completely... Um... You know, sympathize, empathize. I'm not sure which one it is, but yeah, I, I definitely feel you. And I think that's a really so, such a great thing. Like I personally struggle, not necessarily a lot, but I, I think about the fact that Wittgenstein tried to deter most of his students from going yeah. into academic philosophy. And so, although I wear proudly, perhaps a bit too proudly, the Wittgensteinian label and, you know, have merch almost literally like I have to think <laughs> like being a true, being a real Wittgensteinian, I have to take seriously that deterrence and saying, is it really what, is this really what the best way to 
act on the Wittgensteinian, you know, commitments or certainties that I have. One good thing for me, um, I don't know if it's actually a good thing is like, so I also work in philosophy for children or philosophizing oh, with children. Right. So I, I always tell I always think to myself, I'm going to wind up being a pre-K teacher. It's going to be the oddest thing in the world. I'm going to wind up getting a PhD in philosophy. And in the end, I'm going to wind up wiping snot from some four-year-old's face and, you know, mm. teaching them the <laughs> alphabet or something like Wittgenstein's days in uh, school teaching in Austria, you know, minus the violence. But, yeah, um, not that, but yeah, sure. yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's the weirdest thing in the world because I've had tried to explain not that you can really do that well with, with Wittgenstein to my non-philosophical friends or those who are not particularly into Wittgenstein. And I always have to finish by saying, and the end product is that we don't have to do philosophy anymore and we can just have a happy, comfortable life and not freak out <laughs> about things. And, you know, basically just go back to being normal, being ordinary. And uh, that's not a great selling point because at the end, like, they're like, oh, do you mean you, we went through this elaborate, you know, sort of process of learning and, undoing our biases and philosophically and the goal is just to stop doing philosophy at some point and for me it's like yes absolutely but for you know it's like I said it's a tough selling point if you're just like first get into this really complicated person who's really dense and who you'll have to probably have to read three or four books to begin to understand and maybe a biography or two and at the end of the day if you do it right you can leave it all behind whenever you want to and go you know pick flowers in the meadow or something like that. Throw the ladder away, so to speak. Well, my uh, my intuition is that you're probably not gonna have that option, my friend. I think it's probably in your guts. Um, yeah, leaving philosophy behind, uh, it's not something I think I will ever do. It's not something that I want to do. I think it's a, you know, a deep part of my personality. But how I then relate that to the institutions that um, make their money off philosophy that that's something that is not so clear-cut you know I think forgive me for being a little cynical but I think a lot a lot of times especially at our stage in the career the the offer of prestige often stands instead of money and like job satisfaction and stuff like that you know you you want to get a job in an institution because it's it's a prestigious thing to do and it's like it's cool to be a philosopher isn't it ultimately I think that's give me bullshit um and that we should <laughs> i just want to be happy man like um i'm not really interested in the in the in the prestige i like publishing books and i like it that people like yourself actually read and get something out of it i love that if i can make that happen and still be happy that's i'm good i'm good i'm good with that you know i want to be in a philosophical community because i think it's essential obviously you know i don't want to be one of those mad guys that just like writes a two hundred thousand word thesis and it turns out to be nonsense because he's never shown it to anyone i want to be in the community but i also want to engage with philosophers in a way that i can still be happy do you know what i mean i mean Not that makes perfect poor. sense um yeah. <laughs> yeah i i just want to be happy i just want to be in a community of people who where i can say uh -huh. stuff that makes sense and i can understand uh -huh. the sense they're trying to make and we yeah. can live a life and like have a nice community sort of thing. But yeah, and that makes perfect sense to me. I guess this next question might be, I don't know how a little difficult. I think they're all pretty difficult. I really thank you for bearing your soul with me. Um, <laughs> but I'm trying, man, I'll try. Come on. 
<laughs> the one question I guess well, I wonder about, this is more, I guess, more of a matter of curiosity since yeah. everyone gets into philosophy differently. And so there's not a recipe for just introducing someone to philosophy. But given that you have teaching experience and that you you yourself have been into philosophy, I'm always just interested for those of us who are in, in the field or like in, in philosophy, how would you, what would your, I guess, your favorite method be for if somebody, you meet somebody or you're, you have a new student in your class or something, and they've never really been exposed to philosophy before, you know, they're not necessarily hostile, but they're, they just, they don't know what philosophy is, right? I mean, that's itself a metaphilosophical question, right? But so how do you typically go about getting people to start in philosophy, if that happens, or if you've been able to do that? Is there like a topic you start with? Or is there any, maybe books, but mainly just like, what's the process? How do you begin people philosophizing? Or how do you go about showing them what it is you do, if they have no idea what it is that a philosopher does? Interesting. That's a great question. Um, So I guess there are two things. Um, Frustration, and giving reasons. I think that those are the two things that I use. Um, COVID has been so disruptive because I feel like philosophy needs to be done eye to eye. And that's because I want the sum with students, sometimes a good way I find of engaging them is trying to say something and look for the annoyance that you could just catch in their eye. You know what I mean? You, you just see, oh, I've said something that, you know, oh, what well, colours don't exist. What? what are you talking about? I want to get that little bit of an emotional reaction out of them that gets you into I mean I try and do it in a nice way I try and be charming you know I try and be like Socrates about it but that gets you into the conversation and I think a nice way of doing that didn't Russell do something like this maybe it's it you know he did his little intro to philosophy book where he starts off by saying well look does he have that example where he says well colors aren't real are they and everybody says well of course they're real Russell and he has like one or two like arguments to give and people are like oh it's not as simple as I thought oh stuff that they just had absolutely no doubts or questions about now they've got oh a little bit of a downer question about it that for me draws people <laughs> into the game draws them into the terrible sadness and despair that we want to, to share with them uh and I guess the second one is reason giving Pete I mean maybe this is um I mean, I don't consider myself working class, but it's like a working class English thing that people speak with great certainty about absolutely everything. And I think it's very, very healthy to introduce people to the concept that, well, you actually need reasons to believe things and to believe things very strongly. You need strong reasons. And so with my students and stuff, I just try and drill into them again and again. Okay, you've given me a undergrads love to give you massive metaphysical theories that they believe. And I just want to say, okay, that's great. You can say whatever you want. Just give me a reason. Just give me a reason. Just give me a reason. And eventually by year three, hopefully they've started to give both massive metaphysical theories and some reasons for them. That's how I like to, yeah, that's how I like to try to get people into philosophy, you know, just give me, think well about it. Give me your reasons. That's all I want. It's not much, is it? Yeah, I, I completely agree about the reason giving thing, because whenever I, you know, whenever I'm in like an Uber or just in any setting oh, where someone yeah. has to ask the dreaded question, so what do you do, right? Yeah. We, have, we haven't thought of better ways to um, <laughs> get to know people yet, but yeah. 
reason giving is so key and it's such an ordinary activity. Like we do it all the time, even to ourselves, right? Like I, I know that some people don't have an interior monologue. I very much do. And so for me, it's just constantly a, a negotiation with myself of like weighing up reasons and giving them and taking them. The way that I express it when I try to explain to my mom what it is I do, because I don't think she still knows, she knows after all of these years <laughs> is that the way that I've sort of expressed it is that especially, I mean, it's easy to find and pick on political examples, of course, but not to do that here. I, the way I've expressed it before is to say that it seems like nowadays, and I'm not even like, I'm, tw I'm 29, so I don't know why I I'm speaking like I was born in the 50s, but it seems like nowadays, <laughs> <Good old> days, <laughs> <laughs> it seems like nowadays people walk around and they, they bear their beliefs almost as if it's like a pain that they feel. Like, so a, a lot of it is just emotive utterance or just, it's like so many things get spewed out of people's mouths. And although it's in some natural language, effectively, it's just this exteriorization of this thing they feel really hard and really deep, but that they don't, they're not able to articulate why. And if posed to them, if, if, if asked for their reasons or asked for something like that, similarly, like to someone who's in pain, they sort of just the reaction is hostile, like sort of draw back and like, how dare you challenge like my, my how dare you challenge my grand owie, you know, my grand ouch, I'm in pain. And my goal in so much work that I do at, at the practical level of like when I when I get to teach or when I do teach or when I'm just having a conversation is to say, I get that you feel something real deep. And I'm not down, I'm not down to try to just, I'm not trying to harm you by it. But we can refine what you're saying until we get some sentences, right? You don't have, our beliefs don't have to involuntarily attack us or befall us like some kind of disease or passion that we can just express. You don't have to, like reason giving isn't the activity of just vomiting because you're you know, ill. Mm -hmm. You can actually refine what's coming out of your mouth until it might actually be enough to look like a key that'll unlock someone else's owie. And then you can have your owies together. But that's wow. how I try to think about it. That's nice. I like that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm on board. So I guess maybe speaking of owies, which is a really odd tangent, but um, so your book, I mean, I've read it. I read it last, I wrote it over the summer, actually. I think that's whenever I last oh. sort of looked at it and picked yeah. it up. So I don't have it before me, but I know the general gist and I'm really on board. But for the benefit of, as I imagine, people who've not read it, if you had to explain what it is you'd accomplished in... Um, Moral Certainty and the Foundations of Morality. That's the name of it. I, had to, I, I was almost called it. I almost confused your book with Yulia's book, but so that. So you've, so you've written this interesting. <laughs> so, I mean, you've, but you've written this work on the foundations of morality, a sort of meta-ethical account of, of morality, right? From a Wittgensteinian perspective. And you make use of uncertainty, which is, I guess, pretty hot right now. It seems like it's pretty hot in our community. Um, and it's great. I mean, I love uncertainty. I use it for similar and different reasons. But so you've done something interesting, which is to articulate, you know, an account of where our moral certainty and our kind of, I don't know if belief's the right word, because I know that it's, some people think that it's not propositional, but our certainty that we have these moral obligations or that we ought to behave towards others in some particular way. So if I'm accosting you on, you know, the bus or something or on the tube, how do you explain what it is that you were trying to do in that book? I mean, and in a way that works for you, like that's a really, I just opened all the cans of worms, but. Thank you for the worms. I will eat the worms. Yeah. Um, well, I guess just on belief, um, I would be happy to talk in terms of belief because I would, I think there's probably non-propositional types. If you, 
if you understand belief as an intentional attitude, um, you, you know, you can have things a bit more broadly, but that's debatable. That's how I take it. Uh, the book. So what is it? So basically, I think there are some things, some moral beliefs, which are beyond the possibility of doubt, beyond the possibility of justification, and yet are fundamentally important to being moral, being human. Um, I'm not the first person, obviously, to say that. I think the person I usually refer to is Nigel Pleasance. So he wrote a paper, I think it was 2007, something like that, linking up Wittgenstein's work on uncertainty to morality. And I heard him present that paper and I was like, I wish I'd written that paper. That is so good. Um, it, yeah, it really was great. And so my research led me down that road. And yeah, ultimately, if I was talking to a non-philosopher, I guess I would say, look, this moral stuff is like caring about goodness, caring about not being an evil person. That is so deep and fundamental to every functioning human being. I want to have a go exploring what sits at the bottom of that. Um, why on earth do we do that? Why do we think like this? So the book is a, an attempt to do that in an academic context and along the way kind of destroy some theories which I don't like, like um, strong moral relativism and, and stuff like that. And I have a go at McIntyre because he, he thinks that there's some sense in which modern morality is completely unfounded has lost its has lost its roots so yeah i want to say what is at the bottom of morality and i want to use that partly to like savor some uh, some things i don't like <laughs> i love the metaphor we're getting we're, we're involving all the universes now <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and um i think some of those basic moral certainties are universal which i think probably a lot of philosophers probably wouldn't agree with that but so i try and mount a case to say look i think some of these very tentatively, are universal for all um, human beings that deal in morality, as in all human beings who are not uh, pathological in some sense. The local ones are very interesting also, but the universal ones are also in there. Right. So if I'm not mistaken, I think that, um, and I, I, I like these too, right? So the I think you argue um, and make a pretty good case that at least two moral certainties that are beyond doubt and are also universal happen to be the thought, the conviction or the certainty that at least some killings are wrong, right? And we can disagree about which those are. And that, that, that can vary, but what doesn't vary is that some killings are wrong, uh, impermissible. And the other one, which I wasn't expecting when I first, of course, read it, but I thought was really important and interesting, and I now use a lot in sort of how I think about it, is that morality is hierarchical in the sense that not all moral principles matter equally. That might be an incorrect way to say it because I know that you argue against a typical understanding of principle-based morality. But the idea is that, not, I, the way I guess I, I might express it is that not only are some things wrong and some things right, which is a way of looking at, you know, just the fact that some things are wrong, but that some things are more important than others. And that will play an important part. You know, maybe stealing the loaf of bread when you're starving isn't as bad as, you know, killing the, wantonly killing the stranger. And that's an important insight that, you know, it's, things do matter in a sort of proportional way. And oh. we can recognize that. But yeah, I'm really interested in the idea of the local, of the local, so, I mean, the local certainties or the local hinges, so to speak, as well. Because I thought your examples were really interesting. Um, You give examples of, 
certainties that are held at a local level because of the life history of a given community, like the Pashtuns in Afghanistan or the ancient Greeks or the ancient Hebrews with their convictions about right and thing, things that we wouldn't now think of under as, as under the purview of morality, like taboos and dietary restrictions, but which really are an important part of the cultural history of these groups. Yeah, I, I'm excited by that because it accounts for, it can help account, you give an account of how that it can show that more, our moral convictions can change without giving into relativism. But I'm also, I, I so personally, I'm very influenced by the writings of Danielle Moyle-Sharrock, certainly, and also Duncan Pritchard, and some of the more hinge epistemological stuff right now. And although I'm excited by it, and it makes me, you know, it it excites me, I also get worried because I know that, like all things philosophical, there's an opportunity for a massive misunderstanding, especially with Wittgenstein. And so one of the questions I literally, I'll just spring it on you, but one of the questions that came up when I read the book, uh, and you were talking, particularly when you're talking about the local certainties that are capable of change over time, but still function as that sort of anchoring certainty within our moral reasoning in a given framework. My Mm -hmm. first thought literally was, holy shit, is white supremacy a hinge certainty? (laughs) Interesting. Um, Or in general, like not just for something like that, but the idea, um, I I mean, we might, I'm not sure exactly how you interpret the notion of the hinge certainties, but the way that I take that, that Danielle articulates it the way that I usually have seen it articulated is that in our epistemological framework as humans, we have these core certainties um, because Wittgenstein distinguishes between knowledge and certainty, which not all philosophers do. Certainty is able to become this kind of not exactly non-cognitive, but this very visceral thing about us, which makes possible our propositional reason giving and our propositional discourse about morality. But the actual certainty itself is so deep down and so sort of indubitable that it plays a regulatory function in our reasoning. And so like a hinge, you know, the, you know, the, the doors of our reasoning swing around it, you know, and although the hinges can, the certainties can change over time through things like experience or through sort of massive, you know, pretty um, intense experiences, I was, mm-hmm. since, even though they can change, in the moment that they're actually being used as the hinge around which our reasoning turns, they're regarded as absolutely certain, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, I think that, so the question comes up, like Duncan Pritchard asked the question, right, like, is belief in God a hinge certainty? And I think that's an example of the kinds of things that instinctively we're likely to do with them think oh let's replace let's replace the old metaphysical foundationalism of our work with the hinges and then hope it goes well mm-hmm. and so we can, you can think of questions like yeah maybe some of our moral certainties like not killing or not hurting children are hinge certainties and so they're foundational and indubitable and or maybe something like if 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 one is like a religious believer maybe a certain of one's religious convictions are part of the hinge framework and again that sounds good from an apologetic perspective but then i'm wondering but do we get to say that you know do we say that hitler for instance had a different hinge or was he literally unhinged <laughs> um, great yeah that, that's the paper right there that's great <laughs> Um, and that's yeah just running that by you because I mean I think that that was a big thing on my mind like if we acknowledge the difference between universal moral certainties and we also make room for the local moral certainties that are conditioned by culture you know which is not always moral (laughs) and not always you know that's not morally um, unquestionable 
do we wind up in a situation where someone is like, well, it's just a deep foundational certainty of my frame of mind that white people are better than people of color or that men really are better than women or things like that. How would, like, now that, uh, since, since we're pretending you meeting, you're meeting me, the philosophical neophyte on the tube, and you've just told me about your project, but I also happen to be a, a wild conspiratorial, you know, extremist and I latch, I latch onto it and I'm like, holy crap, you've given me the resources for building an, a hinge epistemology of my own bias. And then how do you, how do you stop me? Or do you just have to, uh, you know, take me out before I leave the tube? <laughs> yeah. do, do I do the going back in time to kill Hitler thing on you? Right. Yeah. Um, that's a danger. Yeah. Um, again, to, maybe to reference Nigel Pleasance's paper, he's got a really nice section on how um, he feels like the, uh, the, the, the notion of basic moral certainty does not entail moral conservatism. And I guess we can get into the reasons for that if you wish, but I think that's something like that is true. Um, and I also think it's true that cultures have had held moral beliefs as certainties, which we would certainly disagree with. I think the example that comes to mind is the rightness of revenge. I feel like there's certain cultures and contexts where uh, revenge is like definitely the right form of justice. Um, you know, maybe in a, in a stateless kind of community that doesn't have sort of a centralized judicial system or police force that has never, never had such a thing. You know, getting everybody to, getting all the, all the men together to go and kill this guy who did something terrible, that's the right thing to do. It's not just permissible, it's downright obligatory, like you must do it. Uh, I, can, I think there were societies in which that was the case. And I think we would probably disagree with that now. I think revenge is usually seen as a bad thing now. Although I think, interestingly, like the ghost of it kind of lives on. I think when, when you do have these local moral beliefs, that lose their foundational status. I feel like they do still, they still have an influence. They're not gonna be, they're not gonna be rules like they are when they're certainties, but yeah, they're gonna have an influence. So like, you know, we watch Dirty Harry and when he executes someone in an illegal manner, we're like, yay, that's great. I'm so glad you got revenge on that guy. Cause I feel like in our, in our gut, we've still got it, but it's moved. It's in a different place. It's not a foundational thing. The white supremacy thing, I would hope that it is no longer a moral certainty. I feel like it doesn't go without saying, you know, if someone said of these two people, which is the most intelligent, the white guy or the black guy, and I said the black guy, they wouldn't be like, well, that's obviously nonsense. You know, you could have a conversation about it. But I don't know, I'm, it's not my area of history, but I would, if someone told me there was a point in European history and American history, where it was the case that white supremacy was just part of the bedrock, I'd be like, yeah, I'd, I'd be certainly open to that. Especially because the ghost of it is still very strong in us. It seems like a bit of a symptom that maybe this was held at a foundational level at some point. I mean, I don't know if it's a moral certainty. Yeah, I mean, I it's also not my area, 
Um, yeah. I'm probably I'm probably one of the worst um, philosophical persons of color because my first impulse oh, was geez. to flee back to you know the Austrian British guy. But I, ha I have friends who do work <laughs> yeah. in critical theory or critical race yeah. theory and in philosophy of race and Africana philosophy. Wow. And I mean that's one of the things that that's the only thing that I took issue with in your book actually. And it wasn't a big thing, so I mean it, it was really a really great book that you I you can take people. issue with whatever you like as <laughs> fundamental as you like. That's our yeah. game. I'm really yeah. happy to talk to you about it, man. Right. Honestly, we can still be friends. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's great. Like you bring up in the book at some point. I don't know. This is all from memory, but sort of the issue of slavery, right? And so yeah, you, yeah. you you bring up that. I mean, it was once in some parts of the world, not as quite as many, but I mean, it certainly was once. Slavery was a huge part of human society and civilization for most of our yeah. right for a great part of our history. And there's economic reasons. There's all kinds of reasons. But and you bring up the interesting point, which I don't you know doubt, which is that in kind of like manumission instances or ceremonies where someone is freed, their status doesn't become, or they, at least in the stuff that you cite, it, the person doesn't become a human, right? So the idea is that we know that slaves are humans, right? Even though you might be able to kill them with some kind of impunity or, you know, and maybe you can't kill all slaves with impunity. I think you give the example of like the Spartans and how the Spartans would terrorize their, their slave class, you know, because it's, well, there was a big danger, right? So slavery was an, is really was a really big part of human society, but it doesn't entail the view necessarily that slaves are not human. I think that in classical slavery, that's probably true. But I think like people, there's always a tendency amongst just everyone to underestimate how really bad and how really fucked up the American the American situation was in terms of slavery, oh. especially because, and this is something that I'm deeply ashamed of as a philosopher, and I think we all should be, is that like the ingenuity with which philosophical justifications and religious justifications were engineered, you know, made out of whole cloth to justify the institution of black slavery in the US. And so, I mean, the, the, some of the things I've read, like I, I, try, I attempted to take a class in critical race theory. And I remember like the first, uh, first few weeks in, like it was just a lot of reading of this horrible stuff. And like, there was a time when literally like I finished my reading for the whole like day, it was a whole lot of reading. And at the end of the day, I just like poured myself a drink and was like, I, I wept for a solid, few seconds oh, bro, and then Lord. when I just regained composure I was like okay moving on I've had my drink I've had my cry let's continue the work and it turned out you know it was a lot for me but because especially because I think people I don't want to say like us because I you know uh, obviously I just met you but I think that for morally sensitive people there is for people who are deeply concerned about you know the, the demands and the call of morality there's a temptation to think but it couldn't get that bad Right, like we have, like I guess we are probably kind of oddballs in philosophy, in that historically speaking, in that we're not quite as cynical about human nature as, say, John Calvin. Right, like we don't have to believe that deep down we're all deeply wretched, and you know we'll do evil the minute we get the slightest chance. But there are people who've done that, and it's something to like be puzzled about at the very least, if not deeply distressed by. There are people who were able to, even though I even though I do want to believe that deep moral concern for the other and deep moral conviction lies at the core of what it is to be human. There are also those people who, like you say, are pathological. And for that, even granting that, you know, even they're able to function unhinged as it were and wreak a lot of havoc. And I don't know what to do with them. Like we can say, but they're the pathological ones, but you know, sometimes the pathological ones become presidents or become, you know, prime ministers. And then all of a sudden it's everyone's problem. So. 
yeah you know that's yeah that, that is a great point um often when i present so for a bit of background there's a bit in the book where i talk about something called primary recognition where i make this claim that um there's this kind of incorrigible thing about human beings that when they see another human being they see something um that requires some kind of care and consideration uh like you have to see another human being as a as a, something of moral value if you want to put it like that and so like you know in the same way that you can't see a tree and not see it as a physical object you can't see a human being and not see it as um something which is morally equivalent to a chair or a bit of furniture i hope that's clear enough and this primary recognition thing uh, whenever I talk about it, <laughs> it annoys people, which is great, which is what I'm all about. Um, and part of the annoyance, well, part of the concern, I think, is I think people think I'm painting too rosy a picture of humanity. Yeah, but Neil, Nazis, what about, you know, slavery, evil? And yeah, my, my aim is certainly not to say that people don't do evil and aren't evil to each other. But hopefully what I've said is consistent with the uh, presence of deep, deep evil being committed by other human beings and even the possibility that I myself could do evil things. All I kind of want to hold on to is the fact that as well as all the rubbish, there's also an incorrigible part of us which can't stop ourselves having concern in some deep physically grounded way for the other. So I like Simone Bay's little um, vignette. She says, you know, like, if you're alone in your room, you're just physically, your being is very different to if there's someone else. There's just tiny little things that you do to make accommodation for a person. It's not something you think about. It's not something you choose. And it's not something you can turn off. Uh, it's just something that's there. So... That's what I mean by primary recognition, and it's very minimal. You don't have to do much in order to do um, to have it, and I think it is motivationally weak in that you can use your your reason, you can use your propaganda and stuff to get people to just ah, ignore it. No, that's not true. Oh, this um this guy who's who's working in the fields, he look he looks human. Sure, great. But let me give you all these um, pseudo-scientific facts and figures and that will make you be able to, to treat him as an object. Not to get too heavy, but um, I usually bring up as evidence a little bit of something that Himmler said, you know, the, uh, the high-up Nazi guy, that he had to talk to his troops because uh, during the Holocaust, they were shooting, they were shooting Jews and the soldiers we're finding this too psychologically difficult. Um, and Himmler talks to them and says, well, look, I understand it is psychologically difficult to do this, but he says, the greater thing that you've got to do is to do your duty for the country. And it's your duty to do this to these, to these things. He would call them things. Um, and so I guess the point is that even like, I, I don't want to appropriate these, these stories. You know, I've just, I'm just trying to make sense of this primary recognition stuff. But yeah, the, the fact that you can do something deeply evil, like kill Jews in the Holocaust, and still there's something um, which recognises that what you're doing is, should not be done to another person. 
And I think the psychological scarring is a testimony to that fact. There's two things that they're trying to do. They're trying to believe this is an object and they're also trying to believe this is um, something that is due some level of consideration. This is not just a piece of furniture that I'm destroying. Yeah, how does that fit with slavery? Slavery is a harder thing. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I, I address it in the book and Cavell's really good on this. You know, he talks about soul blindness, which is a lovely phrase. And I don't think a functioning human being can be soul blind. I, I don't think you can look at a, a slave and see them as a, as a tool. But I'm on shaky ground there. So I'd, yeah, I'd, if you've got any critique, I'd be very happy to hear it. It's something that I still have to think a good deal about. Um, yeah. But I think that, yeah, like the worry stands. And I mean, slavery was just the example given what you say in your book, but my my sort of real aim is just other kind of ideologies or things that in the moment do kind of usurp that primary recognition or can usurp the certainty or the certitude of the, our foundational core certainties. And I just, as long as we're on the same page about saying that it's not a given that those certainties will turn out good by our modern understanding or judgment but if it's if it does play the regulatory role i mean i think of white supremacy here just because my yeah for me it's important to remind to remember that the hinge certainties as i'll call them or just the, the core the sort of core certainties we have they do play a regulatory function in our behavior and our action and our reasoning which is the scary part it may be that if somebody literally has as a anchor or a hinge foundational certainty in their system of belief that certain things are this way that you know that people are not all equally worth valuable or worthful or that some other people aren't even people or in you know, or persons then if they do hold that in the visceral way that Wittgensteinians hold certainty to be then reasoning or the, the game of giving reasons with them is going to end or turn out very differently than for other people who we would call normal or rational or non-pathological. And so like, since part of my interest is also the epistemology of disagreement, that's kind of like a very big blind side to have to think, wow, maybe there is a point after which discussion is not possible or reasoning giving runs out and where we're left is not in some nice kind of ethereal Wittgensteinian place of just the fly coming out of the fly bottle. Sometimes the fly might escape the fly bottle and then wind up still getting swatted, right? <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Well, look, two reasons for optimism. I think what you said is is a danger. Um, I think part of the part of the account of local moral certainties is that it's everything in the form of life, everything in the society that keeps these things in their in their place. The certainties when stuff moves, um, local moral certainties gently fade into something else. So, like the revenge thing. I think it wouldn't work in this in today's society. Um, it a belief like it is definitely right to commit revenge. It it wouldn't have air to breathe. One would hope in um, in our modern society. And so I guess a reason for hope is things like the uh, the white supremacy belief. If it is in fact um, at the level of hinge, which I'm not convinced of yet, but I'm happy to be convinced. Um, if it was there, one would hope that as things change, as the society around changes, that it would lose its ability to, to be rooted as a certainty and would therefore change. Uh, and a second reason, I guess, for hope is that I'm not saying that 
moral certainties can't be changed, only that they're not through rational means. So if you think that um, all uh, all people of colour are X, Y and Z, negative things, uh, if you hang out with a lot of people of colour and have genuine conversations, I would just have the, the foolish hope that um, non-rationally you will start to... Um, uh, that 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 belief would start to move. I know that sounds so idealistic and stupid, but yeah, I just got such faith in people if they just meet and talk to each other that things change. But I don't know. Yeah, non-rationally, those beliefs can change. And it yeah, if you want to get into an argument, yeah, there's no point. I say there's no point. But yeah, if you if you can think of some ways of inculcating those beliefs non-rationally, then you're on better ground, I would say. No, I think I definitely resonate and think that's a good point. I was like, even remembering more from the book, I was going to come to your own defense using your own book, thinking like, yeah, I forget that the hinge certainties are not just, like I say, they are like a pain that's incorrigible and that you can't get rid of, but that they are kind of externally held in place by Mm. the societal structures we have in place. So I can see how that would be. The gradual change interests me though, because I know that historically Wittgensteinians have been accused of being like being very quietistic and very <laughs> conservative in saying like, let's just describe things the way they are. Let's have no intervention. Let's just like, we leave everything as it is. And in, you know, at least I'm not convinced that that's a, a correct understanding of Wittgenstein's point anyway, but even if it was, I'm very much an activist in the sense of saying, mm-hmm. no, this stuff doesn't stand. We need to change this. And I'd like it to be in my lifetime so that I don't have to just like, you yes, know, so- watch for, watch from the other side of the sky or wherever it is we go when we die, if anywhere, um, I would very much like to experience the benefit of revised moral certainty today, um, mm-hmm. when, when we can, if we can. Right on. But I think lots of the isms, I'm just interested in how hinge epistemology over the course of time, depending on how popular it gets and how well people like um, Duncan and Danielle are able to defend it, how it's going to interact with all of the isms and all of the biases that we have. Um, Cause they, they come from somewhere, they're sustained by something and finding the roots of it. I'm pretty sure the roots are irrational or non-rational and acknowledging that means that our job as philosophers is a little different than we take it to be. Um, maybe it's not, maybe I'm not going to be able to change the world by publishing a paper. Maybe I'm not going to be able to like affect someone or impact someone's moral structure or the structure of their moral beliefs by writing a really cool book about it, <laughs> which is also partially why, you know, I reached out because I thought I t- happened to take a grad course in a different department in the anthropo- in the anthropology department in at my school. And one of the things they talked about, because it was a course on professionalism of in that sort of discipline, and they talked about, you know, scientific literacy and the importance for scientific publication, not just at the academic level, but I mean, like, more like science journalism. Right. And I realized we don't really do that in philosophy much. And I'm sure it's because, I mean, to some extent it might, like there are some really good philosophy podcasts and pop mm-hmm. resources out there in one sense. But on another level, I know that I'm a first generation doctoral student or I'm like well, the first person in my family to ever be insane enough to try to go this far in academia right like very yeah. much I know Americans don't use working class in the same way that Brits right. do but probably very working class background and so I realized I've yeah I'd never had anyone a real living philosopher talk and just never heard it expressed what it's like or what the job even looks like or entails. Like, like lots of people, I'm still wondering what it is we do. 
and it's different for everybody. So it's worthwhile to sort of ask, but I think it's a re completely reasonable question, right? Like, I don't know how it is exactly in the UK with like the research councils and all of the funding. It's I, all I know about the UK educational system is that it seems rather scarier than the US system oh, really? <laughs> to me. Um, but for the, for the way that it's worked out in North America, part of, you know, I, I always tell myself, I'm like, wow, I appropriated six years of tax funding so I could be a geek for six years, which is right. great. I mean, I'm not sorry, but I do, I do think like, I do want to make it, I want to be as accessible as I can to mm -hmm. people who are not as weird and nerdy as me, because I'm convinced that there's value in it and that there's something of interest there. The way I try, and I've, I also sometimes try to explain it is that all experience is philosophical. Yeah as long as you know how to sort of make it philosophical for yourself. And that's the task, realizing that you don't have to be a PhD at all to do philosophy, you know, to do philosophy, to write about it and to be published and to get, be taken seriously. Unfortunately, sometimes you do, but to actually do philosophy, you don't need anything more than your own present experience, but probing that and plumbing that is the part which I wanna help people know how to do that so that they can do philosophy all the time. And then maybe they'll be as harried and harassed and despairing as I am, and then I'll have some company. But yeah. certainly just giving people the tools to analyze their own experience and to realize this is how things have been for me and this is what this means. Here are the deeper implications of my ordinary existence, which you could have missed because you thought philosophy was about, you know, going to Oxbridge and being really cool and wearing a tweed coat and, you know, having an obnoxious accent of sorts and, you know, flying around and giving lectures that upset people. Yeah. I like that last bit. I'd like to fly around and upset people, but yeah. Yeah, that too, too. I'd be completely hypocritical. I would gladly correct. love that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, you've got this uh, philosophy for children stuff as well, right? I mean, that's that seems like a real concrete way to sort of you know introduce people to just thinking well right yeah it's we literally call it thinking time we don't even use the word oh, philosophy when we perfect. work with them perfect so i guess i know i don't want to take a lot um and much more of your time but i guess one final question i occurred to me that i didn't think of when i was writing was that you've mentioned that you've worked in you know teaching a little bit to theology students and it looks like although you bring up some religious examples like in your book I know that there's a weird relationship that religious people have with Wittgenstein um, mm. because and I know that because I have a really really weird relationship with religion and with Wittgenstein I know I, I guess that it's pr probably at this kind of pr time pretty standard to think of Wittgenstein and religion primarily in terms of you know DZ Phillips and some of the more controversial Wittgenstein, like it's kind of synonymous with anti-realism and the boogeyman of relativism. But there's also this like really underrepresented vein in Wittgensteinian philosophy of religion that I found, which is just pretty standardly, you know, kind of Christian. I know, I don't know if John Lippett is himself, but he's a Kierkegaard scholar. And so you, it crops up. There are some really suspicious usual suspects with Wittgenstein that usually come up with like Kierkegaard and Simone Weil and some of the others where it's a really interesting motley crew, but there's lots of religious fervor there. So maybe um, has that played any part in sort of your work or, although you, you don't do a lot of like explicit philosophy of religion, like it would be odd if it hadn't cropped up at any point. So how, if at all, do things like an interest or lack of interest in stuff like religion or just 
being around religious people. I think there's more religious people in the U.S. than there are in the U.K. But so for me, particularly where I'm at in the Bible Belt of the U.S., it's oh, a very yeah. pressing thing. Like it's <laughs> constantly, it's ubiquitous. So I don't know if that's relevant at all in the U.K. scene as much. But how do you find um, that interaction with like, you know, the Vic, the the odd the odd Wittgensteinian religious people who are different because they're, you know, we're not like, it's, we don't have the convenience of a metaphysical structure like Neo-Thomists or something. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, religion's important. It's incredibly fragile, hanging by a thread or like walking on a tightrope to use the Kierkegaardian metaphor. Yeah. Does, does that interaction play any kind of significant role in your work or is it more in the background? Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. Um, I don't really judge with the DZ Phillips kind of uh, way of, you know, the anti-realist sort of school. I, I don't think that sort of respects religious people's um, views of what they think they're doing sufficiently. Although I'm sure, I'm sure that criticism has been tackled, but that it remains a criticism for me. I guess for my the Wittgensteinian stuff in itself, I think Wittgenstein, what he says on religion, what he says on ethics, um, I don't think is particularly good. I don't really, I like what he says about certainty and I like loads of other stuff, but the stuff he specifically says about religion and ethics, I'm not too convinced on. But I think Wittgenstein would, so I'm a, I'm a Christian of, a, of some variety. <laughs> you know, like we go through a journey, don't we? But uh, I'm not super conservative, but yeah. And Wittgenstein, I guess, is an effect on that in that I don't, I really move away from the, the metaphysical kind of theology. So, you know, your kind of traditional stuff about uh, what is the nature of God's being and stuff. The Wittgenstein in me says, I'm sorry, uh, we've gone beyond the point where we can talk sensibly about that. And so sort of existent arguments about God's existence, uh, stuff about um, his, you know, all the omnis and stuff like that. I've no time for that. I stick away from it. But in terms of what I do think, so when I want to talk about God, I'm happy to talk in terms of what his character is like. So, you know, I'm a Christian, so I've got the person of Jesus. And I think I can I can talk in a comprehensible way about what I think God's character is like. I think he's kind. Um, I think he's very wise. I think he's loving. Those words make sense. And I think the context in which I'm using them, I can use them appropriately because I think of God in a, as a personal thing, as in like he is a person, not just an entity. But that's about, so the Wittgensteinian stuff will mercilessly cull anything that I think is too metaphysical and not rooted in either my experience or what I think you can say about a person. So that's definitely a way in which, yeah, Wittgenstein sort of, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, whether I like Wittgenstein because of that or I'm that way because of Wittgenstein, I don't know. And more specifically in the book, I don't credit him, but this this thing about, I don't like views of morality that see it about following principles. So Lerstrup, he really points you away from like Kantian style, style principle morality to what is right or wrong is fundamentally about the other, is other regarding. And I, I think Jesus' battle with the Pharisees in the New Testament has like fundamentally influenced that because I, I see it's 
the details of the arguments are different, but I see in spirit something fundamentally the same about, you know, Jesus saying, look, don't worry so much about um, giving money to the temple and the rules and getting all the rules right. What you need to be doing is looking at the other. You need to be looking at the poor and you need to be doing what is right by them. I, I think that is, that's also influenced like the moral stuff in the book as well and in me. Yeah, that's also refracted through Lerstrup, so I don't know. You should never listen to a philosopher when they talk about the New Testament because they always read it wrong because they've got their philosophical hat on, but that's what I think. Yeah, I think that, um, I think one of the things I really liked, that's actually one of the features of your book that I really, really liked, that um, the way that I would express it and you, like if I'm not representing it right, then you know just shut me up. But the way that I would express it to myself or to someone who I wanted to kind of, to a moral philosopher who wanted to like think more about this, right? Because it can sound scary to say, well, it's, we're, not, we don't, we're not basing morality on principles anymore because the fear then is immediately like, at least for a lot of analytic philosophers, well, then on what, right? Exactly. If not on, on, on what, on consequences, right? Then we'll all become like, you know, consequentialists. Like, so there's the the recoil and the sort of clinging to principles so that we don't at least, at least we don't wind up being consequentialists, right? But the way that I would express it is that at the foundational level of what our obligation is to, since I do think I would consider morality to be obligation-based, maybe not principle-based, but you know, based on something like the like the ethical demand, the moral yeah. demands that people make on us. And I guess the, I would, the way I would say it would be that principles are important. I don't think that they're unimportant. And I think that like you mentioned in your book or you intimate, they can operate as a really great shorthand for what our experience and what our reason giving has shown are usually the right ways to do things and go about interacting with situations. But our obligation is not to the principles, it's to the other, right? And I think that's where it comes up like, you know, the the old, the good old fashioned criticism of the of criticisms of, of Kant, you know, being prince, such a principal truth teller that, you know, he'd, he would give up the Jews, you know, for that. And yeah. actually, given that I work a lot with Kant's religion, um, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure that that particular view of Kant is fair. I think that, I think there's, there is a possible way, I guess I'll put it this way. I think that in, I think it's in the, one of the prefaces to the religion within the boundaries of mere reason, mm -hmm. um, uh, accidentally, not intentionally, but Kant accidentally lets out sort of something which I think is very Wittgensteinian uncharacteristically, which is that he says, you know, if, if somebody, so Kant says, you know, we, we know that we're supposed to give back something we're holding in trust, or we know that we're supposed to give true testimony and stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you met someone who did not actually think that, you know, he's of the opinion that we can elicit that view from people kind of Socratically, you know, you know that it, you have to give things back whenever they're asked from you, or you know that you have to tell the truth in court and things like that. But he says somewhere that if we met, if we actually did come across someone to whom that was unintelligible or who didn't think like that, we could not do anything except recoil from them in horror and disgust. <laughs> um, the idea being that, you know, the assumption is deep down people do know this and we philosophy is just about making it explicit. But if you met someone who really wasn't like that, you know, some a pathological individual who really could not be prevailed upon to see the value of telling the truth or of returning things held in trust or just helping another person when they can, that there is no response to that person. You know, that we, we, you can just shudder to think they're that different, right? And so I think the, even though Kant of course was in his own way, not strictly a metaphysical philosopher, but definitely a very theoretical philosopher in, in this sort of sense that 
he's able to, you're able to see this isn't going to fully work out in the end, right? The first, the, the first critique is going to crumble. The practical critique is going to crumble. And then we're going to be left with, you know, the moral despair of the 19th century. But if you had just stayed with that original point that, mm-hmm. you know, that reasons run out somewhere, I think that there's a lot more similarity between the real foundation and not just the putative foundation of the Kantian framework. I was reminded by a professor over this past semester that, you know, flicht, you know, the obligation in German is really a derivative of flagen, which is care. And so, and the idea, you know, he said, if Kant had just remembered his etymology, he would have gotten it right. But, you know, the, the mistake was to think, well, our duty is to duty instead of to someone else who we have to care about. Yeah. I don't know if any of that made sense, but I mean, I've put together since I, since I read your book, I've learned more and I thought, oh, he almost had it right. Yeah, I mean, look, he was obviously a moral man, you know, he's, he's got it in there. Um, I will, yeah, I guess I would, I'll pick up this thought that for Kant, you know, if you meet this guy on the, on the train or whatever, and they're very, very different from you, this conviction that we all somehow know what is right and wrong. I'm very cautious of that because I think uh, there, are, uh, there are some things I think yes everybody who has some kind of morality will agree with you like the killing some killings are wrong some things are more wrong than others I think you'll have that but where I think relativism is um, aiming at the right thing is by just looking at the pure kind of context dependent variability of it all and I think that can go so deep I mean even when Kant's talking about well we know we should give stuff back when we borrowed it I think there's so much um, cultural framework involved in that, that for him, it's easy to say that because for him, it's a certainty. But I wouldn't want to make that like necessary for human morality. You know, you might have a society that's grown up with completely different property rights that doesn't have the idea of property, for instance. And that wouldn't be the case. So, yeah, I guess I would also want to point out it's also so very deeply culturally embedded and the stuff that appears to us as a certainty um, may, may very well not be, or at least may not be universally. That's a really good point. And I think what, all I wanted to get at was the idea that there is some, there is a part of morality which is not rational in the sense of not yes. responsive to reasons yes. in the same way the rest of our discourse is. But no, yeah, definitely. And all, I mean, a great many of Kant's problems will arise because of the, you know, the attendant views of experience, right? I think that there's actually, it's actually okay to learn morally through experience, whereas for him, he would probably want to insist saying it's not as big a part. Although even that, like, look, like, most, like most of things regarding Kant or even Wittgenstein, there's debate, but I'm very keen on humanizing Kant a bit more because I think there's a lot there, but um, I definitely jive with the idea that it's not our obligations and our sort of the foundation of why we have the obligation doesn't come from the rule by which we express it, but rather right. from the other, you know, the very real other to whom we do have the obligation. Yeah, that's Lerstrupian. And that's what I dig about Lerstrup, you know? Yeah, I love it. Well, this was so awesome. Thanks so much for doing this with me. Um, if you, again, feel free to ask me anything if you want. I mean, we've had a great convo, but this was awesome. And it's, I actually have no idea what I expected you to be like, but from the book, because I've been told that I sound nothing like when I write. Oh, really? <laughs> um, but um, that might just be, of course, the fact that philosophical writing is its own sort of trade. But yeah, mm-hmm. you, like, you definitely seem awesome. Someone who, if um, we weren't in a pandemic, I would literally go to the pub with all the time. Oh, but... man, yeah. It's been so nice uh, speaking to you. You know, such a nice guy. 
Um, well, yeah, so thanks so much. Um, this was Neil O'Hara. Is that, is that right? Pronunciation's right and everything? O'Hara, O'Hara. O'Hara. I went to want it. I, I guess one final thing, because just out of my sheer curiosity, right? I'm very sensitive to being like, where are you from? Or like, where, you know, that sort of thing. But like, given that we're sp obviously speaking slightly different dialects, uh, where are you from? Um, so I'm from a town called Luton. Uh, we, we say Luton here in Luton. And I try not to dumb down my accent. This is how I speak. So yeah, basically, it's a little bit outside of London. Um, yeah, Southern England, that's where I'm from. Awesome. Yeah. And I can, I can set that to rest now. I'm not, it's not going to keep me up. Um, what about yourself? Where, are you, where are you from? In the so I'm, yeah. So I'm from a city called El Paso in far oh. West Texas. It's oh, so from Texas. Yeah. I'm technically from Texas, but of course, Texas is so enormous. It's so enormous that um, yeah. it's very different. I'm so I'm from the Southwest region of the oh. U S and then I'm going to school at um, Texas A&M, which is quite far away, even though it's still in Texas, yeah. but it is in the, in central Texas and in more of the sort of culturally, almost part of the, uh, the South, um, maybe actually part of the South in the US and definitely part of the Bible Belt. So it's, it's an like, opportunity. How is it living in the Bible Belt? I think it's, I mean, it's certainly not bad. I'm not gonna paint a bad picture of it. I think that although, you know, I, one of the reasons why I love doing philosophy of religion, particularly the way that I do it, is that although it's easy to hear, oh my gosh, I live in the Bible Belt. And so that must mean that I live amongst a bunch of like super conservative people, which is, I mean, that much is probably true, right? I, I live amongst statistically more conservative people. But as far as the religiosity goes, and I think it's more, it's definitely a more conservative area with regard to religion. I think most people are some kind or some type of evangelical Christian or maybe Roman Catholic, but more conservatively Catholic. But, um, What's, what's interesting is that even with all of those embedded assumptions about, oh my gosh, I live in this place that the rest of the world kind of looks askance upon, people are still super interested and curious in what they should believe and what they do believe. And as long as you can actually have a real human conversation with someone, I love the people, I love the area. Yeah, it's been great. And so what I really love is that there's that, especially if you can mingle in the religious motivation because religion is such a powerful motivator, you can have really awesome and discussions and really awesome kind of philosophical dialogues because people do want to know and they think of it as really important to know and to sort of probe these things. Now, once we get to those local hinge certainties, I'm not going to be able to liberalize the conservatives, but, you know, well, gradual yeah. change over time. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and I, I, honestly, sometimes even I myself find, um, not that I'm more conservative than I think, but that there's common ground. And I think that's great that there is lots of common ground because it would be surprising if there wasn't. We're all human, you know, at least all of us who are human are human, which is now getting just pathological. And I'm now reducing myself to silence, but there's so, like, humans are so such fascinating creatures and I like them all so much. Um, maybe even the pathological ones, if I can, <laughs> you know, meet them from a safe distance, you know, yeah. it's just really interesting well, to be able to talk to people. And I think that's a big part of what philosophy is all about. It sounds, doesn't sound particularly prestigious, but if I say philosophy is an endless conversation that you just have to dive into. And, you know, since, we, since I do run a podcast on religion, maybe the conversation goes on longer than we think it does. And we have other interlocutors, but getting comfortable talking to dead people as though they're living and acknowledging living people as living is a big part of philosophy, which is why I love it so much. Dude, that's so nice. Yeah, I, I imagine that you write very well because you have a way of speaking and a way of phrasing things, which is really nice. 
So I look forward to reading some of your stuff. I reckon you're probably a good writer. That's what <laughs> I hope that's true. I hope it's true. Yeah, I'm working on some stuff that, you know, maybe I'll at some point send you and we'll see what happens with it. But um, well, thanks so much. I'll let you get going because I know it's later in the UK than it is here. Um, yeah. But it's good it's good. yeah, stay safe and stay well. You know, happy holiday to you and all yours. And thanks so much for talking with me. Hey, so nice to meet you, man. Thanks for thanks for chatting.